Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Well, I wanted to do a recap of the van attack from four years ago, how it made us feel back then, things we've learned about it since. And there's still that nagging feeling that justice has not yet been served. But don't ask me. Ask victims of what happened on April 23rd in 2018. Still a big problem, and it speaks to a larger issue with our justice system specifically. And I want to get into that. Mustafa Farouk, uh, by the way, uh, commenting on a new lawsuit against the Canadian government for an improper imprisonment and torture in Guantanamo Bay for a man not accused of a crime, but simply held for 14 years. He lives in the Netherlands now, but he has filed a fresh lawsuit. We know there have been others of these, but this one has some very unique principles to it, and I want you to hear about it on the show today. So that's it. The Toronto Today podcast begins now. This is a serious weekend when it comes to remembering something that happened in Toronto that this isn't having to go back to the 70s or the 80s or I didn't live here. Most people did, and most people know how this made them feel is the van attack in 2018. And there's two layers to what I want to get to in the next several minutes here. One is how that made us feel. And one is the fact that our justice system, uh, the wheels, are not like a ride at Canada's Wonderland. They're not like the car you're driving right now. They are uh, encrusted with rust. They don't turn very easily. And we're talking more, uh, you know, turn of the century technology, like the 18th century. Let me explain what I mean by that. We have a scenario right now where uh, the justice system has absolutely let down the victims of this attack. And the victims are, we know again, we, were, we felt scarred for several days. We think something happens in another city and we watch it. We watch the Boston Marathon bombing and we're like, I can only imagine what that feels like. We watch a lot of other terrorist attacks, whether it's one person or something that's combined. And don't forget, this is before the Danforth shooting as well. The Danforth shooting happens later that summer. So we have two terrible things on the streets of Toronto and uh, in like about a four month span, all told. And uh, to be blunt about the van attack, uh, I remember it like we didn't know what to do for days on end. What what would feel normal? They played 10 p 11 people uh, dead. A member of victim died just recently within the last, I want to say, eight months uh, from her injury. She was never the same again after being uh, run over um, by this person and 15 were injured. So it was a notorious incel influenced a crime. And they found Alec Manassian guilty of 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. So that was that. Now, the trial took a long time to get there. Uh, he was, um, he, he obviously is uh, in, incarcerated right now. But there's a lot of frustrated people um, about the reaction to the sentencing itself. Well, why is that? Well, because they've kept this very much sitting out there without giving him a full sentence. Justice Ann Malloy decided last year, I'm going to hold off on sentencing. I want the Supreme Court of Canada to rule on a 2011 law that gives judges the discretion to stack up periods of parole and eligibility for multiple murderers. This would be wonderful. And this, this is done, by the way, in almost every other Western democracy that I checked on last night. All the Western European countries do this. Like, I get it. It's hard to compare systems of justice in a bunch of other countries. 
Canada's highest court now has heard this case, but there's no timeline for a decision. Let's go. What are we waiting for? What do we pay you people for as Supreme Court of Canada justices? Of all the things that you shouldn't hem and haw about, like you're weighing uh, you know, where to go to eat on a Friday night, like you're deciding what shoe to buy from Amazon to, to go for a run later this summer. Come on. This is really, really important to these victims. One such victim is Kathy Riddell. Riddell was one of the people run over by the car and or by the van, and she was lucky to live, but suffers with her injuries. This maniac deliberately drove a rented van down a busy Toronto sidewalk looking to in impart pain, suffering, and yes, life loss on as many people as he could. And the concept was he's aiming to run more over women than men. It's terrible. Uh, Kathy Riddell says she's very frustrated that there's not finality and closure for her as a victim, and I don't blame her. But somebody should be communicating with us at some point, you know, to let us know what's happening in case we want to participate. And I think a lot of people need to participate. I think that helps them. It's, you know, after, after two years or now three years of virtual, it doesn't help me. It doesn't work for me, so I'm just going in on my own. She's 71 years old. She wants to look the perpetrator, the accused and convicted in the eye and give a victim impact statement. And I can't tell you that that's not important or unimportant to her. If she feels it, it's real. Riddell said the Crown attorney called the victims on April 4th to say Manassian's going to get sentenced to one count of first degree murder on June 13th. Why just the one? He'll get an automatic life sentence, no chance of parole for 25 years. But I understand why that's not good enough. You'd understand why that's good, not good enough. Not to compare the crimes, but we still have parole hearings for Paul Bernardo every couple years. Why? What's wrong with us? Why is that happening? The court and the Ministry of the Attorney General said sentencing is set for mid-June, but they don't have any details about it. Victims want that opportunity, if they so choose, of course they shouldn't be forced to, to make a statement to the court on how the attack ended up affecting them. And Riddell says she can't wait for that day, but she's already waited way too long. It's, it's our only opportunity to be face-to-face with him, and I really want him to know I'm a real person. It's not a game. It's not a video show. We're real people with real pain and real suffering. I really admire her stepping up and saying this. Here's the quote that I love the most. I think it's time that this country at all levels and the judiciary need to take a serious look at victims' rights because it's basically the last consideration. We're like the extras in a play or something, only this time we weren't even in a play. We were in a separate room watching on video. And she's right. 289-975-1640 is the text line if you've got comments on that. What is it about our justice system that seems to play to the favor of the accused? And it's one thing to give the accused rights. It's one thing to have uh, a justice system that certainly allows for debate. Is this person guilty of this crime or are they not? We can't try people in the public eye. We can't try people through the media. But once they've been convicted, I'm sorry, those rights dissipate. And we have to shift the, the onus to the uh, and the balance of, of power to the victims. And we get to hear from the victims and they get a say and they get rights after all this time because there's she does, this woman has no memory of being hit by this particular van and she's relieved that that's the case. But what she's gone through the last two and a half years 
hasn't helped her recovery. You can hear it in her voice. You can hear the pain and the agony in her voice. It's worth also mentioning that I don't know what this day was like for you, but I remember it really, really well. Um, and and this happened, ended up, I, I think I was trying to sleep that day. You do you do mornings and you try and sleep later on in the afternoon. But this happened, start getting text messages about it. You start to watch the coverage of it. I also remember the Leafs were playing the Bruins that night in game six, and there was a lot of debate. Should they play the game? Well, they did. I don't know. Those things are really difficult. What's the right thing to do? What's not the right thing to do? Um, I suppose if you had a mass terrorism scenario and and had people at large, you would not play that particular hockey game. But I had no problem with them playing it, and I thought MLSE and the Maple Leafs handled it incredibly well. Um, that that was the case. Remember, all we've done for two years is debate what should happen, what should not, what should... I don't feel ready for this, so that means nobody else feels ready for this. Well, we had a different world in 2018. Also, the video is remarkable, remarkable. There's not just police video of it, but there's bystander video of Ken Lamb, Constable Ken Lamb of the Toronto Police, making the arrest of Alec Manassian. I'll make the point again, again about the police. There's issues There needs to be some reframing, some restructuring of what police do when they do it. But when we have all these clunky phrases like defund the police, remember who got this guy. Remember who tracked him down. Remember who was brave enough to get within 10 feet of him, not knowing if he had a loaded gun or not. Manaskian wanted to be shot. You might remember that part of the video where he pretends to keep drawing something out of his pocket. But Lamb wasn't buying that it it was a gun. And that Lamb wasn't buying that he was in any danger. And if he felt in any danger, Hart's probably at 180 beats a minute, right? Lucky to be alive. But these are special people through training, through DNA, whatever it is, that can stand there 10 feet as Alec Manassian reaches into his pocket and A, not duck and cower, and B, not respond and shoot this man in the chest. Here's uh, here's Ken Lamb making the arrest of Alec Manassian. Deputy Chief Peter Ewan talked later that day, actually, I think it was the next day on the 23rd, about how brave Constable Ken Lamb was. Because let's face it, Alec Manassian, once he got out of the van, we don't know his state of mind. We don't know whether he has uh, a weapon or not, or an arsenal of weapons. Here's Peter Ewan talking about that. He did not like to be to have that hero status bestowed upon him. He does not believe he was the hero. He thought everyone deserved the same credit. Ken Lam was not assigned to that call. Ken Lam ran to that area to immediately to render assistance. He happens to bump into the suspect, and he has to take immediate action. That's how simple it was. He wants to thank the public, and he wants the public to not to call him a hero. He's Officer Ken Lam. He's real. He's got a name. He's got a badge. He's not a hero. A terrible day in Toronto, four years ago Saturday. And let me come right back to Kathy Riddell in my remaining few seconds here. The impact of that crash, lucky to be alive, sure. But it fractured her spine, broke her ribs, her scapula, and her pelvis. She has a she had massive bruising, internal injuries, a brain injury, and then you feel guilt. She went through what she described as depression and survivor's guilt. I can only imagine. I lived. The person three feet away from me did not. I lived. The van kept going and killed more people. And all she wants as she says from our justice system, her quote, again, some communication or any communication would be nice. She wants to see this sentencing 
before this person, before she dies. She's 71 and she shouldn't even have to ask for that. The fact she is, we've let her down and we need to fix our system. 719, lots more coming up on Toronto today. 10 degrees now, 19 later. If you've got thoughts on the uh, van attack from four years ago and the absolute dithering in the uh, Supreme Court of Canada and the justice process as a whole, this is a straight-ahead case. Judge him. Give him every, every line of defense imaginable. Judge him. But when he's guilty, you sentence him. You limit any opportunity for parole because of the horrific nature of the mass murders that he committed, and you close the book on it. And this book still isn't closed, and we're into its fifth year. I want to give time for this uh, important story. You may have seen it over the weekend um, that a man uh, who was born in uh, Mauritania lived briefly in Montreal is suing the federal government for $30 million. Now that's no small amount, but his allegation is Canadian officials made false claims about him. That was passed on to by interrogators and he ended up being uh, imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay without charges and without charges, there's not going to be a conviction. You need one to have the other. And uh, and they made a famous movie about this. Um, look, we've all been uh, catching up on movies, I suppose, during the uh, during the pandemic. But this is an important one with a wa- lot of huge names backing it uh, called The Mauritanian. Jodie Foster's in it. Um, Shailene Woodley, who uh, you'd remember from a couple HBO shows. She's in Little Big Lies. Right. She's famous for being engaged to Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is in it. It ends up being a really, really important story. And so now um, this gets very, very real and back in terms of prominence in people's eyes about the things we got very, very wrong in uh, in a post 9-11 world. Mustafa Farouk is the CEO of National Council of Canadian Muslims, and he, he is kind enough uh, to join us now. Mustafa, thanks very much for making the time uh, for our show and our audience. I appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having us. You've been very aware of this case and this man for a long, long time. It, it didn't take a movie for you to be aware of it. Why uh, Why now for the lawsuit, in your estimation? Why is the timing right to uh, to, to have this happen now? Well, I mean, I think, unfortunately, I mean, as, as you can, as, as, as is clear from the filing of, of, the, of the lawsuit itself, uh, it was only in 2021 that we actually had American sources, not Canadian sources, but American sources, confirmed the extent to which Canada had uh, been involved in the torture of, and let me just remind all your listeners, an innocent man, a man who did nothing wrong. I look at this scenario, uh, Mustafa, and I do wonder that the statements that were taken out of context and, and switched around, is the concept right now that they that it was faulty information that they were getting bad sourcing? How does this get viewed now in terms of of the court filing? It, it's obviously um, a, a scenario where uh, like he feels there was tremendous injustice done and there was no recourse. That's the biggest thing is is the length of time that it took here and, and the terrible things he went through. Yeah, I mean, let's like let's call a spade a spade. Um, you know. Mr. Mamadou was uh, surveilled and harassed um, because he was a Canadian Muslim that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, one of the pieces of evidence that was brought against him, in fact, Mr. Mamadou was tortured over this piece of evidence and that Canadian authorities pointed to was the fact that he once made a phone call, um, you know, talking about wanting to have tea and, uh, you know, tea with one of his colleagues. 
you know, this is the kind of unacceptable um, ways in which our national security agencies have operated. And I mean, it's just like it's one of those kind of like dirty little secrets that we all know about, we all acknowledge, but we don't talk about. It's why somebody like Maharar, again, another Canadian who was tortured mm. um, with the complicity of our government. And if you're anyone who's curious, you can you know read about the RR inquiry and just go online and, and learn more about that. Uh, this isn't the first time the Canadian government has been complicit in this kind of thing. This man's now living in the Netherlands, um, and uh, and it, it's an oddest thing because he was accused of uh, of a statement in which he had mentioned a desire to blow up the CN Tower. He says he'd never heard of the CN Tower, and uh, John Oliver on uh, on last week with John Oliver did a, a great you know dissection of how to of how to interrogate and get a confession for virtually anything. And and it, I thought about that when I read the story over the weekend, uh, given the fact he'd never been to Toronto, but. They were able to break him down to the point where you'd confess to anything. Exactly. I mean, I mean, we all we all know that you know when you're when someone is being tortured over years, um, you know they 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 you can get people to say crazy things, mm-hmm. uh, and you know we're we're not the first people to observe that. But but again, Mr. Mamadou has never been convicted for anything, uh, and is widely regarded as being entirely innocent. Mustafa Farouk's our guest, by the way, CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Um, when I think about this uh, and, and how I'd advise the federal government or Justin Trudeau himself to handle this, um, bottom line is I would have I would have handled this by now. Why why let it get to the point where there is a lawsuit? Why there, you you said it before? There have been certainly precedent setting cases in a post nine eleven world about, you know, terrible things that have been done um, and, and you know, evidence that was not really evidence and whether it was out of malice or paranoia or Islamophobia or whatever it was, it happened. Why not Why not take the bull by the horns and, and settle this and, and make amends prior to this? Well, that's a, a really important question. Uh, you know, why are we kind of okay with... Um, the King government doing this on a multiple uh, set of occasions. Why are we okay with the um, director of CSIS, our national security agencies, uh, repeatedly getting away with misleading Canadians? Uh, I mean, it's not just it's not an isolated incident where you know it wasn't the fact that you know, like in Mr. Mamadou's case, American authorities had to come forward and tell us about the fact that. Uh, Canada was complicit in his torture. But this is not the first time that CSIS has misled uh, Canadians under Director Vignault's watch. Uh, you know, Justice Gleason at the federal court put out a eviscerating decision talking about how CSIS had once again breached the duty of candor obligations uh, a little more than a year ago. Uh, and that's just a fancy lawyer way of saying that they were choosing once again to mislead courts. Mm. I've seen some people compare this over the weekend to the the Omar Cotter case. Um, and I think that's, to be honest, me saying this, I think that's too simplistic. I think it's a very different set of circumstances here. That that was obviously a, uh, a person born in Canada, captured by U.S. soldiers, convicted of, of crimes. Now, again, we could have a great long conversation about about that conviction and holding him and and what he went through while he was held. But they're two very I think they're a, that's a very. You know, to you to use a eye rollingly common phrase, it feels like apples and oranges to me. Would you say that's fair? 
It, it is totally apples and oranges. Yeah. Uh, you know, Omer's conviction as a child soldier, uh, you know, w- while in a conflict zone, uh, you know, captured, uh, you know, in the, in that context is completely different from Mr. Mamadou's story um, as somebody who is completely innocent and did like, no, there's no, uh, no one believes that he actually did anything wrong or was going to do anything wrong. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because I did hear people, and I uh, I checked a, uh, I tried to check a couple people, and I said, oh, it's another Omar Khadr kiss. I'm like, it's very, very different. Whatever you got, you got to judge. Again, not to defend the, the torture of a, of a no. torture, but, uh, but yeah, just to be clear. But yeah. No, when I when I think, I, I'd love for you to take our listeners back to to post 9/11, and you wondering, would it get this out of control? I was living in the states then, and and uh, in Michigan, and Dearborn, Michigan, has a has a heavily Muslim population, and I'd, I'd go there. I had friends that lived there. We'd play roller hockey against some teams that were almost all uh, Muslim players, and I knew a few of the guys, and they'd say, we know what's coming. We know we're going to get hassled at airports. We know it's going to be difficult. We're all going to have kids someday, and they'll go through worse hassles than we even went through. Um, when you look back 21 years ago, how much of this was how much of this was in the in under the guise of of keeping security and making sure another 9/11 never happened again and how much of it was was just pure and simple authoritarianism and surveillance for the for the sake of harassment oh man now that's a, I know I, I I loaded you the last question. question with something that's going to take you 6 minutes I know that's a big question but what what maybe what I'll just say very briefly is that um I I think it's not over you know the reality is that, you know, I can tell you that I, on a personal level, every time I go to the United States, I'm often pulled aside mm-hmm. um, and spend two to three hours being questioned, you know, about why I was in Pakistan and, uh, you know, what my, what the date of my wedding was and uh, whether I've had weapons training, like, you know, crazy questions that get asked to somebody um, on a consistent kind of basis. Uh, that kind of era of profiling surveillance is, is not over. I mean, it was just a little while ago that we had Trump's Muslim ban. Um, and so we, we, we have a lot of work to do um, as folks in North America. And obviously the vast majority of people here are, are, are good people. Um, and the vast majority of Canadians we all know are, are good folks. Uh, but uh, Edmund Burke famously said that all that's required for evil to triumph is for good folks to do nothing. And I think we, ha- we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Mustafa, let's have more conversations about this. I really enjoyed this today, um, and I hope we can go into more depth next time we talk, and we'll have more time to do so. Thank you. Got it. Mustafa Farouk, CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Earlier, a chat with uh, Eric Cam from uh, X University, who we usually talk to, economics professor, and uh, I wanted a conversation about getting kids back to the classroom. We're a big advocate for that. I try to, I try to fight for that. I'm a big warrior for that. And, uh, and I asked uh, Eric about it, and he's going to have four sections of freshman university kids. This is our conversation. I'm going to have about 4,000 of them. And I think that for the very first time since the double cohort effect, I'm going to have to spend some time with students on exam prep and how to write exams and how to deal with exams. Because there are students that do and students that don't thrive under the pressure of exams. It sounds like you were one of the ones who did. Um, Not to make the listeners angry, I loved exam day. And frankly, I loved looking around me and watching people freak out on exam day. That's right. Because I didn't. And it was just one of those things that I I have a bit of a confidence. And I knew that I knew that because I studied, I was really a studier because my mom and dad said, just study. You don't have to have a part time job. God bless them. That I knew that if 
I wasn't prepared enough for this exam. Nobody was prepared enough for this exam. So I did have the confidence, but I also went to AY Jackson in North York, right through to grade 13. And we practiced test writing under all different sorts of conditions. And I'm gonna get students like you said, who are being thrown into a deep end and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when, it's, when students are gonna face things that are not their fault. And they're gonna look at me and say, I've never really written an exam under exam conditions. And they're right. And we're gonna go right back to that discussion. I don't wanna to be too repetitive yeah. for time, but what's gonna happen when that probation rate is at 50% again, and students are gonna to come to me and say, a lot of this is about my exam writing ability and preparation, and they have none. It's not their fault. They just, they've never done it. And I think that a lot of us, I hope, I hope my colleagues and I'll have the time to even dedicate a half a lecture one day to how to write a university exam, or these kids are going to be lost. Yeah. It's, and to be honest, the tutoring industry as to how you actually prepare and sit down and have the mental fortitude to write, those industries should thrive. But here's what will break your heart again. Not every student can afford a tutor. This is why many kids with with learning loss and many kids that were sent home for school over and over and over again in Ontario. It's great. A lot of the doctors that advocated for it, they're they're fine. They've got <laughs> giant bedrooms and all the space in the world and they can afford a tutor online or otherwise. And a lot of kids can't. We have to stop talking to doctors and tenured professors about how hard life is because it's not, it's not, not for, for us. And so you and I said this a year and a half ago, we're all in this together is the biggest bunch of bunk they've had to try to sell people during the pandemic. There are the haves and the have nots and never have those two divides been greater as been shown by COVID. No, no. Um, I read this headline in the Globe and Mail. I read it. Uh, it's, it's a Sunday story. So I read it yesterday. Why more bankers are leaving stable jobs for the high flying world of cryptocurrency. I I'm a two out of 10 for understanding what crypto is. I even saw a headline over the weekend saying separate Bitcoin from other crypto. And now I'm even more confused. Are you stunned, astonished, or, or does some, do, do, do they see something that the average person that doesn't know about it, who might be skeptical, doesn't know? To me, there is nothing more threatening to people's lifestyles than the word uncertainty. I'm a very risk averse person. Look at what I do for a living. I took a risk averse life and a risk averse paycheck. And I think that cryptocurrency from everything I've read, everything I've talked to people and everything I can infer seems to be just one giant gamble. And the reality is, is whenever you have a gamble, it's gamble versus certainty. It just comes down to what is your personality type? Are you someone who's a real risk lover and ready to go to an extreme to try to make a fortune? Those people are very high on cryptocurrency, the same way they're high on lottery tickets and anything else like big equities in other countries that have a high risk reward factor. And you have your people that like me that are very risk neutral and wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole because they'd like to retire one day with certainty. So yeah, I mean, I read a lot about it. And I have people brag to me that this is the next great thing. And here's the ways to do it and get in on this level, don't miss the boat. But I, I see it as gambling, I see it as nothing more than high level gambling. And I see it as just another way of identifying risk, and you're either going to be down with risk, or you're not. And frankly, I'm not. So I would have to be from Missouri and you're going to have to show me long before I ever invest in this type of stuff. You say it's it's got that that risk element, but doesn't any kind of day trading have that as well? If they're saying, hey, do it all on your own. Like there are commercials. There's a commercial where the girl gets the guy, the dad helps the, the girl buy her car. But they're on they're, they're doing that as well. They're like she's like she, he's teaching her how to um, how to how to 
you know, trade. And she's like 19 or 20 years old. That's got its risk to it. Everything has its risk to it. But the difference is, is you can day trade for 10 or $15, much like your Miami Dolphins gamble. But crypto, to, to buy into crypto, some of these companies, you need five or six figures of liquid assets to buy into crypto. You're not buying in for 10 or $20. Yeah. And that's what they don't tell you. So, no, I think I think it's a very different risk and reward. And if you're afraid of risk and reward, there are things that have no risk. I mean, we're living in a terribly inflationary time right now, and we can delve into that next week. But there's one good thing about inflation, which is if you're a have person and you have a lot of wealth, maybe now is the time to start buying bonds where they're going to give you a fixed rate of interest. And you know what? I've been looking at them. And not weeks ago, bonds that were paying one and 1.25% are now paying three and 3.25%. So if you like getting away from risk and getting into certainty, maybe you're going to buy bonds. But the problem with crypto isn't just the risk. It's like the high stakes game in Vegas, Greg. Can't buy in for 10 bucks, got to buy in for $10,000. And not a lot of people have a lot of $10,000 denominations sitting in the bank. Derek Cam. Uh, the French election results are in. By the way, Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. Who wants to go vote on a Sunday? What are they doing to people in France? <laughs> this is the, this is the second weekend in the last three. They did the runoff vote on a Saturday, and then they did the actual general election on a Sunday. Give me a day off work and and let me maybe go. They what were is hoping, that? Well, maybe they were hoping that more people would come out and vote this time around. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what how much of the percentage of the population actually showed up this time. Yeah, that's a, um, let me see if I can see. Uh, oh, my, 71.99%. Oh, my gosh, that's way higher than our, I think our provincial election <laughs> last time out was 56. I wonder if it'll was be it more this low? time. Oh, I hope June 2nd it will be. I have a feeling it will. This is a pretty, I mean, it's been a, it's been a long few years. So I think people have, want to express their... That's what I thought about our federal election in 2021. And I was, we got 62.3, and that was down from 2019 when it was 67. Like we're higher than we think, but I I, I want to get the number right for uh, for Doug Ford um, dusting off Kathleen Wynn. What was that <laughs> percentage? That was uh, yeah, fifty six point six seven, under fifty seven percent. But here's the funny thing: in two thousand fourteen, fifty one point three percent. We stink at getting out in Ontario and voting in provincial elections. So, but see, I, that I think last you're right. provincial election, that that forty four percent who didn't vote, you guys have no say. You can't complain about anything. I think if you don't cast a vote, you're not allowed to complain. That's a very authoritarian law, not allowing okay. complaints. What would our show do for three and no, a half you, if you Listen, you should go out there, express, <laughs> vote for the best candidate for whatever you believe in. Well, there's a there's a population under 18 that doesn't get to vote. They can complain. Okay, so they're included in that? They're not included in that? No, they're not included in that. Yeah, I'm just, I'm adding, not. I'm adding to, like, there's hundreds of thousands of people that, and I'm, I'm for lowering <laughs> the voting age to 10. I think if you, I certainly think kids should should have got a vote, uh, a lot more of a vote. As I, I think I tweeted it in uh, January. I'm like, kids don't have unions, but they they freaking should. Like, why are we along one set of of unions to dictate whether schools should be open or not? I bet you, if the kids voted as to whether schools should be open or not, you know what the result would have been. Oh, my kids just give them an ice cream cone and they'll vote for you. So that's all I it mean, takes. That's, okay. Yeah, that's all it will take. Well, it's some there's free license plate money back, and there's other parties <laughs> building, like putting trees in the ground, like the Lorax, and there's other yes, free free trees, free contraception. I get free trees, free contraception, and free license plates, <laughs> but I have to pick one of the three parties. Yeah, that's a struggle. Right. Those are all important things. And we haven't even kicked off yet, so who knows what's to come? What else are we gonna get? 
So you said earlier in the show that your travel plans, even considering going back to France, would have been um, you would have seriously hesitated or you would have said that's that's the red flag of all red flags. You wouldn't go if Le Pen had become French president. No. So as we know, last night was announced that Macron has won the election in France. And we were thinking about going to France and England this summer, right? Getting out there, going international. It's been a long time. And I was keeping a close eye on the France election um, simply because I wouldn't want to contribute. Le Pen, look, she's associated with a, with the far right. That's what that her her party's deemed as. Um, and she had a proposal on a ban on on Muslim hij- on hijabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wanted that gone. And she's I just don't want to support that. So if she had won, I was keeping close. I think it was forty two percent of the country voted for. Yeah, her, right. Which is up 42%. from thirty three and a half percent. It's up eight and a half percent from five years ago. So there's obviously a frustration there, but I saw what happened. I mean, that Muslim ban in the States when Trump in 2016, that was, that was kind of, it was really scary, Brady, yeah. just to see that happening at that time with that man. And then what happened after that? And it, it emboldens people to come forward. Anybody who's, you know, I could be having dinner next to somebody who has those same values and those same beliefs, but I would never know it. But if your prime minister or your president is in power and is spewing that on a microphone on a daily basis, uh, you're more deemed to come forward and wear that red mega hat and whatever else. Else. So I, I would I wouldn't want to give France my money. He, her, her, her quote is uh, she argued for the quote de-Islamization of French society. That's that's harsh. That's not that's not having an honest or or database conversation about what we do about immigration. That's not the quote unquote tough line on immigration. When you say we're going to de-Islamicize French society, I can understand how that makes you feel. And, t- oh, and how it makes me feel. And I, it, uh, it's terrible. Yeah, it's not just me. It's anybody who, you know, who believes in fairness and inequality in and not being divisive should stand against this. And I get it. France, it has the lar- it's the largest Muslim community in Western Europe. So I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. I don't know the number, the stats on that. But there are a lot of Muslims in France. And for her to, you know, step up and and propose this and spew what she was spewing i do feel some relief anywhere and that's i mean it's the same in quebec right with bill 21 with i mean if you wear hijab you can't be a doctor you can't be a teacher what is that what is that and and no one no politician wants to go stand up blatantly go against that and that it's scary times to me that's scary and i have a lot of family in montreal i love montreal it's one of my favorite canadian cities you want a good meal you go to montreal you want some fashion you go to montreal but it it irks me. It irks me that, you know, I have to go there and to see my family. Do you feel just... different in the last five years there than you might have like 15 years ago? And is that just, is that also not knowledge personally. and you don't? Oh, not, not personally. No, because I, I'm not a visible Muslim, right? I don't wear a hijab. I don't, I mean, like you can't tell what I am. I'm, I'm, and I talk to anybody and everybody. You put me in any situation. I will talk to whoever you are, regardless of your background, regardless of your, put me in the blackest hip hop club and the whitest hockey bar. I will strike up a conversation with you. That I sounds like care. quite a weekend. I'm signing up for both of them. <laughs> I'm I telling you, I I love meeting new people yeah. and learning about people, and I'm a very friendly person. Um, so I mean, if there is something that you have against me, I wouldn't know it until you know it's blatant. I know I had friends, and I had friends, and I had white friends who said I don't want to go to the United States while Trump is president. That's their thing. I went a couple times, um, and obviously we cross into Michigan all the time just because we we have we had so much of our life there, but. But I understand it, too. And you can imagine for me, I've never gone anywhere in Europe where I'm like, hmm, I'm worried. This is too authoritative a government. I don't like how this government's like, I don't give it a second thought if uh, who the French president is or when I've been in Portugal. I don't know the politics necessarily of 
the Portuguese president or prime minister or Spain. I, you know, so, but I, I will but say I have you? that, I have that luxury probably. You do. Well, as a white male, where would you go that where you would feel segregated against really, especially with colonialism all over the, you know, in Asia and Africa, mm. whatever it is, like you, you go to the Middle East, anywhere you go, you will be deemed, you know, okay, Greg Brady is here. He's got a lot to say. Let's listen to him. Um, it's well, no one says same. that. No one says that in Toronto. So <laughs> no one you got to factor that in your house. You're, you're... <laughs> no, no, not on my. I'm yelling out down the mail. But I feel like Shanghai right now would be somewhere. I wouldn't have a lot of <laughs> sway or influence. I feel like maybe, maybe. Ah. You know, sign a 12 month lease, and you know, I've got cats. That's not like again. They're they're calling pets uh, house pets to just to make uh, you know no risk is too uh, considerable for crushing COVID-19 to the ground. But you're right, going to... I, now, I've never been to Africa and I've never been to Asia, so I don't know how... I can't tell you how oh, it you feels to be in either of those places. I can't... Oh, I want to go. You need to travel, Brady. Get I know. There. I only go to Western Europe. I go to London. I've gone to London like 14 times in my life. I like what okay, I like. Okay, but you're going to fit right in in London. Go <laughs> go see those other cultures. There, It's it's pretty incredible. The world is an incredible place. Uh, great text from uh, Sheila. Thank you for listening, Sheila. She gives me a stat. Uh, Muslims make up 5.6% of French people older than 15 years of age. Thank you for that. We got we got statisticians amongst us mm-hmm. and historians to tell us about the past, well the past, the present and the future. 5.6% is uh is that number. But they belong to the Sunni denomination. How about that? People are people, right? No divisiveness. Let's all come together. We have more in common mm. than we don't. Mm. I'm going to agree with that as opposed to disagree. We only got half an hour left. It's too long a show for me to disagree, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show tomorrow, which you can hear on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com or at 6.40 a.m. in that car or on that radio. I'd love it if you'd listen there, Uh, but you can check us out tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 a.m. Thank you for listening.